Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have Bonnie Hancock in the beach shack and you might know her from the Nutrigrain Iron Woman series uh, back in the day and then she had a break and, and went off and did a university and studies and then tried to come back to become a, an Iron Woman but the time trying to do work and also train was a bit difficult. So she got into the Ocean Paddle series and was quite successful and now she is about to paddle a surf ski around entire circumference of Australia. Then we have the rest of the show as usual. So now let's jump into my chat with Bonnie. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a warm welcome to Bonnie Hancock, who is going to do something to which I've I've done a lot of ocean ski paddling over the years, but what she's going to attempt is um, something that's well and truly out of the ordinary. Uh, welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, yeah, it's a, got a big journey coming up in a couple of months. So, yeah, looking forward to chatting about that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll chat about that shortly. Um, the listeners from overseas will explain how far it is around Australia and everything. But I thought we'd go back to where it all began to get to this point and you know, you grew up in Sort Hill in Coffs Harbour. Actually, that's where my mum was born in Coffs Harbour. So there you go. Us, Beautiful uh, part of the world, God's country down there. It's so, lovely, lovely part yeah. of the world. Uh, so give us a bit of a rundown on uh, growing up in Sort Hill. Yeah, absolutely. So Sort Hill's a little coastal town about three hours south of the Gold Coast. So um, the north coast of New South Wales is about. 2,000 people there. I don't know if that population's increased since I grew up, but um, it's a gorgeous part of the world. We lived right on the beach there, um, you know, just near Sawtell Surf Club. And my childhood was, you know, running around in our sand tracks with my three sisters. Um, you know, we'd walk down the beach to go to board training there. Um, we were involved uh, in surf lifesaving from a really young age. So about five years old, I remember dragging my little foamy board down there and, you know, living in a place like Sotel, you, your parents want to keep you safe. So they do get you involved in the water. And yeah, mum and dad didn't really grow up um, involved in the, I mean, dad grew up in, in Tasmania of all places and, and mum did grow up in Coffs Harbour, but wasn't, you know, involved in surf life saving. So it was just more a fact of them keeping us safe and, and our whole childhood, yeah, ended up revolving around the surf and, and the sand. And in that time when you, yeah, started, you're five years old and, did you know you enjoyed the ocean from word go or did it take a bit of time to get used to it? Uh, I sure did. So my two older sisters um, were involved from a young age as well and I was just begging mum and dad. I think from the age of about three, I was begging them to let me go out on my board. Um, they had to hold me back a couple of years, but I was well and truly what they call a water baby. Um, I think all four of us were. Um, you know, we, we did do other things other than go to the beach as well. You know, we had to go to school and that kind of thing. But um, we, yeah, I, I just loved it so much. I never had that fear of the water um, a lot of kids have. And I think 
part of that is probably having two older sisters and seeing them head out in six foot surf and mm-hmm. you just want to keep up with them. So yeah, I think that's kind of carried through now. I, I still love, love the big surf and love taking my ocean ski out and surf ski and, and heading out surfing when I can too. Well, I know it's Sawtell and, and around Coffs Harbour it does get a lot of big waves. So obviously you've uh, got out there and, and enjoyed that and that got you the experience. But then you competed at state and national level. Now, was that at Nippers level and, and then you progressed into the senior club from there? Yeah, um, for sure. So we had a training squad of probably maximum 10 people. I mean, you come up here to the Gold Coast um, and you, you see a squad of 50, you know, down Sydney, down your way. There's yeah. some really big clubs as well. Occasionally you do get those smaller clubs on the Gold Coast and Sydney way. But, I mean, we had a super small squad. We relied on those around us to push us. Um, we were just fortunate enough to have a great uh, coach there in Terry DeCarl, who with so much experience. So, yeah, it, it was our choice to compete. Um, we were never pushed when we were young, which is, um, I think, a key to longevity in the sport. It's always a shame when you see parents kind of pushing kids. And, um, you know, I think it's come a long way. There's a lot out there now to really educate parents on the right way to communicate with kids so that they're they're not putting a lot of pressure on but we were fortunate enough to have great parents um great people in the surf club so it came from us that drive and yeah we were competing on a state level from you know under eights and that sort of high level of competition from a young age I think really prepares you and prepared myself and my sister Courtney for when we wanted to go on and, and race in the Nutrigrain Ironwoman series which we were we were lucky to to do. So at 17, you moved to the Gold Coast with your sister. What was the reason to do that? Yeah, so we grew up absolutely idolising Carla Gilbert, uh, Penny Turner. You know, we watched them run around and that's all we wanted to do. We wanted to be professional iron women. Um, I, you know, enjoyed the ac- academic side of school and I wanted to also be a dietitian, nutritionist. So for us, the logical move was to the Gold Coast. It's sort of the hub, I think, of, of Iron Women and Iron Men racing. Um, certainly in more recent times, you've seen some of the Sydney clubs come through um, and do super well in North Bondi and um, Manly. Um, you've seen some of the Sunshine Coast clubs come through as well in Alex Handlands more recently. So at that stage, it was uh, Northcliffe was a very dominant club and still is. Mm-hmm. But in Iron Women racing, you had... Christy Cameron there. You had Cherie Merrifull, um, Hayley Badup. They were, they were all at Northcliffe, Liz Plumers, Crystal Smith. So for us, um, it was a logical move and one we didn't regret. But it's a young age to move out of home. And I did not have an idea how to cook or clean. So those first couple of months, I don't know how I survived without food poisoning and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, training under Pat O'Keefe there, it was um, literally like a military boot camp. And um got us into shape really quick. We thought we trained hard in Sawtell. I can tell you we had no idea compared to that level. Yeah, it must have been a uh, eye-opener going up. And But also, what was it like training with the, the, some of these you know, girls and, and the guys that you looked up to and idolised and suddenly, hang on, I'm, uh, I'm now training with them? Yeah, for sure. I, I remember my sister Courtney told me a story where she went to training and wore a singlet signed by Zane Holmes. And Zane happened to be standing on the line next to her about to do a start. So she's trying to sort of hide the signature. But yeah, it's a bit surreal. I think um, you watch them on TV and all of a sudden you're paddling around the cans with them and it forces or, or creates that environment where you go to that next level. You have to sort of keep up or you spat out the back, you know? So I yeah I massively credit those girls there to um, you know for the improvement that we did see and 
um, you know, from training there in the space of three months, I was able to go on and, um, and, and make the series. And I remember the series trials, um, it was my first time racing on a ski. So it was my very first race on a ski. I'd only been on it for six months and it was my fitness that really got me through. So the skills came later, but, um, those sessions were just huge. Like you'd swim in the morning for, you know, an hour and a half. You'd, you'd head straight to the beach to do changeovers, you know, for close to an hour, you'd be back in the afternoon on the craft. So, um, you know, Pat O'Keefe was known for his um, work ethic and, and everyone had to go to that level or, or else again, you just, um, yeah, well and truly spat out the back and, um, you know, you, you weren't going to make it to those finals anyway. It was just so competitive. And you're saying that uh, physically you trained very, very hard. Back then, how did the mental side of things happen? You're only young, you've been thrown in and, and you're training so hard and now you're living yeah, with your sister and, and moved out of home. Was yeah. that uh, any impact mentally on you? Definitely. Um, you know, at 17, like I, I was very sheltered, naive 17-year-old coming from Sawtell. I used to just walk around barefoot and, you know, on the weekend, just hang at the beach with my friends. You come up to the Gold Coast, um, you know, there's a lot going on. It's busy. I remember I just like got my peas and I'm trying to drive around surface paradise with cars going everywhere and trying not to crash my car. Um, it was, you know, it's, it's it was an apprenticeship of sorts there. And I think I had to find a sense of toughness and resilience that I hadn't had to in the past. Um, not only are you going through these grueling sessions, but you're heading home and you don't have that parental support. So I was very, very lucky to have Courtney as a big sister and she really did look after me. And, um, you know, in an environment like that, it's, it's really competitive and all of the girls are friends, but, you know, there'd be the occasional sort of um, little spat on the water or someone would ding someone's board and it, it becomes very close. You're spending a lot of time with these people and although you compete in team races, you're also essentially racing them to get a spot in that series. So it's a lot. It's a lot. But, um, yeah, I, I think that I was able to, to find that mental fortitude. And what really helped me was my university studies as well and having another interest where I could meet people who really didn't give a crap how, how yeah. I was racing and that kind of thing because they've got no idea. So finding those interests outside of sport yeah. as well. And with Northcliffe, it would have been quite tough because – there's so many good competitors there just to make the even now the top two, three teams were still that outstanding. We're probably all making the finals. I, I was in a Taplin. I think we were the C team possibly. And we, I've got a bronze Aussies, yeah. you know, so you could be in the C or the D team and, and have a chance at winning. Um, and, you know, Pat always used to say, if, if I don't put you in the A team, then prove me wrong and, yeah. you know, go off first and see how you go. You would have like, six Northcliffe teams in a final, that kind of thing. Yeah. But that competitive nature of the squad was what brought the um, the girls all up to the level of, of domination. I remember one calling out a gold and Northcliffe actually finished first to 10th in terms of the, in the, in terms of the position. So, um, you know, what Pat was able to create there really, I think, set the standard. And I know a lot of his sessions are still used today and a lot of the structure of the sessions and, you know, things have advanced from there and we're a lot more aware of the recovery techniques and the importance of deloading and training cycles as well. Um, but some of those base, um, you know, sessions are still sort of used. And he was one of the first to bring in the importance of transitions in an iron person too. Um, so it's, it's, it's just really interesting. And again, it was such a, such a steep learning curve for myself. 
I remember Paddy was uh, a, a great guy, and I was lucky. I never trained under him, but at least uh, I had a couple of beers with him, which was probably the easiest side of doing it. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably glad looking back, I never trained under him, but uh, you know, but he did have a, a lot of success with a lot of competitors, and and he was very passionate with uh, everybody, and, and also outside of that, he still cared about each individual. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He would do anything for you, Pat. Like if you, um, I remember one time I, I had an injury and it ended up being an inflamed burst through my hip. And it was, it was, um, when I was 17, 18, and I just sort of gotten on that ski and I had, had poor technique basically. And he went out of his way in the day to, to drive me out to this, um, specialist sort of sports doctor at Runaway Bay and then to the physio, um, you know, and, and would go out of his way to, um, to, to pay for that because I, I didn't have any money as a uni student. I remember feeling so overwhelmed by even just paying for that consult, how much that meant to me, um, and to show me the right, um, people to go to on the coast because when you move to a new area, as you know, like, you don't know the right doctors to go to. You don't know which specialist to see. So not only, um, you know, did he lead you in the right direction, but it was the time he gave everyone. It was just unbelievable. So, yeah, you don't forget that. And, um, yeah, a lot of those lessons sort of stay with you. Now, when you came to the end of uh, racing, you went off and um, had two years to finish your degree. Was that something that you disappointed you gave that away or what was the decision to stop racing at that time? Yeah, no, not at all. It was the best decision I've ever made in my life, to be honest. So I just finished, uh, I believe it was seven years in the professional series. I'd never known anything else than training two, three times a day. And I probably hadn't um, been able to, you know, socialize fully in the way I would have liked or just kind of have that real life balance. I got to a stage at the end of 2012 where I essentially, I got glandular fever and I'd been overtraining and it was a bit of forced rest, to be honest. And that happened to tie in with finishing my university studies. So I was so um, overtrained um, by my own doing at that point that I'd actually had to take six months off uni so something had to give. So it was giving up the rest of that season and actually focusing on my studies solely for once. And you just see that, you know, having that time and effort to put into my university placement, which I had to travel up to Cairns and Coffs Harbour and do hospital placements. I was able to really enjoy that. Um, ironically enough, I remember being on placement and watching my sister Courtney win the series. And so that was so lovely as well because I was able to, support her i'm normally out there paddling around and trying to watch for where she is so i was so happy to take the two years off and at the end of the two years i actually realized i didn't really want to be an iron woman anymore i was like okay i'm working full-time um, i was working in private clinics as a dietitian i still want to be involved in the sport what can that look like maybe a little differently and that led me to ski paddling which is um yeah, it's probably, to be honest, if I wouldn't have had that time off, I wouldn't have come to realise I'd like to enjoy the sport in a different way. So there's always a positive, isn't there? Something that turns your life around for whatever reason and then you find something else. So with this, the ski paddling, was it more just the surf life saving, you know, the, the, the skis and racing there, or did it go straight onto the ocean paddle uh, series? 
Yeah, no, no. I, I hadn't even heard of ocean paddling, to be honest, um, which is really naive looking back, but um, it was the surf ski paddling. So I'd always looked up to the girls like Shereen Merrifal and Christy um, Munro and Crystal Smith who'd won those ski races. And I just saw that as the ultimate uh, race of strength and toughness. You know, these skis are surf life-saving is, you know, 18 kilos and they're hard enough to carry, let alone paddle and bring down a big wave straight. So it had always been a weakness of mine in the series. And yeah, I just thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a crack and I'll, I'll do, you know, six, seven sessions a week and I'll get in the gym and I'll build that strength up. Yeah. And I, I was lucky enough to go on and um, have some good race wins that year, which really just fed that bug for ski paddling. Um, and then during that season, so after the Aussie titles in 2018, people were talking about the Molokai coming up. And I'd always known the Molokai as being a board race. You know, I'd mm-hmm. seen Geordie Mercer dominate and the longboards and Harriet Brown, Lizzie Wellborn. Um, and people were talking about it with the ski. And I thought, well, that sounds like a bit of fun. So I got on one of these ocean skis. They're about 10 kilos. And the first race I decided to do was that 52K Molokai, which is just stupid. I don't know who would do that, but um, we got amazing conditions. So that four hours in the middle of the ocean across the, the channel was just the best. And that, that got me hooked. Straight to the deep end, eh? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I would not recommend it, no. <laughs> well, that's one. I've done a lot of ocean paddling uh, around the world and races and things, and that's the only one I haven't uh, done yet. So it's it's on the bucket list, but I'm getting a bit older. But I think uh, just to complete that and do it and say I've done it, I think that's uh, so it's, it's, it's a great event, as you said. It's amazing. And to be honest, you, you fly over to Molokai, the little island in Hawaii. Um, you know, you paddle back to that mainland. But flying over, you either see the white caps out there or you don't. And everyone's just, you know, eagerly looking over at the plane window. Um, and we were, we were fortunate enough. It was just a ripping down window. Um, you know, they, they had flat conditions the year before. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, surf, uh, ocean ski paddling, if you haven't tried it, is uh, good fun. <laughs> It is good fun, and uh, especially the downwind. It doesn't get any better than that. Now, you raced. Uh, tell us a bit more about uh, the races because you went to uh, other countries and race. So what, what, what countries were they? Yeah, so after Hawaii, um, I absolutely loved that experience. And it was talking, I think, to Jimmy Walker shortly after that where he pointed out there were some races overseas which could allow me to qualify for the world titles. So the world titles were coming up in France. Um, so I went on to race in uh, Mauritius, which is a stunning location. Uh, they have wind all the time. Uh, Portugal, just after that for the Nello Summer Challenge as well. Um, and I met so many amazing people, people like Hayley Nixon, who's done so much for surf ski paddling and women's sport in general, um, you know, Oscar Chalupsi, those sort of people who are legends in the sport. Then I went to the world titles in France and that was just an unbelievable experience. It was actually um, a year of doing a lot of traveling on my own and traveling on your own, you're, you're forced, you know, to, to ask for help and talk to people and try and figure things out. So I think it was a real year of growth for me that that 2018 or even 2019 and i think that's a bit i love about ocean ski paddling it's not just the racing it's the experiences and it's where you get to travel to incredible parts of the world what would your advice be to, to young girls coming through i mean a lot of people listen from around the world to this podcast uh, as you said there's ocean ski races all around the world these days what would you say to someone up and coming um and what's to give it a go persistence um 
surf ski paddling it's such a it's a really specific skill and when you first get on that ski it can be so frustrating you fall off you throw your paddle you lose your ski in it can be embarrassing people are watching you and you know it just takes persistence and even from when you start to a month later and then that year later and after you've been you know that 10,000 hour rule I guess it takes to become an expert at something um, if you persist and you, you know, seek the right um, guidance as well, so finding a good coach, doing your research and listening to people like Hayley Nixon on the, the tips or Danny McKenzie, good friend of mine, there's a lot of resources out there now. So you've got to get on that ski. You've got to put the time in. But then again, you might just want to enjoy it too. But even to be able to enjoy it, you've got to be able to sit and balance on the ski and it's a skill that won't come straight away. But uh, there are so many amazing female paddlers now. It's an area which is growing every single year. And uh, Danny McKenzie and I have started Pushing Limits Coaching, which is a female-specific, uh, uh, co- provides coaching programs for girls. And uh, we're absolutely loving it and seeing these amazing young girls um, and their improvement. So anybody can find that, get on the app and, and get the coaching yeah. if they're interested? Yeah, we, we do. We do online coaching. We do um, face-to-face when COVID allows, um, coaching clinics, one-on-ones. Um, and a part that Danny and I are really passionate about is actually the strength component. So we provide gym programs as well through that. Danny's um, got a background in sports science. So the strength component is really important um, in ski paddling, and particularly in females. You know, it takes a little bit more for us to develop lean muscle mass and that directly translate into into speed uh, on the ski. So that's important too. Now onto the bigger project. And I know just before we touch on that, that you did a, a swim. Was it for 24 hours? I, I remember. It was actually 20, 21 and a half K. So, right. um, so there was supposed to be a swim, the Gold Coast, which was from Coolangatta to surfers. Um, and that's 21 and a half K and it was canceled because of COVID. And I was doing it as a fundraiser for Mindpack, which is a mental health group um, on the Gold Coast that my, my husband actually started. So I was doing that to raise awareness for Mindpack. And w- we were really disappointed, a couple of us who were planning on doing it. So we thought, well, why not go to the pool? And I tell you, I would much rather swim for that long in the ocean. Um, some of the guys had blisters from tumble turning. Um, you know, it was just the chlorine. You don't float as well. But 21 and a half K, it took me around, I think it was five hours in the end. So I don't think I'll be doing that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then you decide to do uh, a paddle around Australia. But how did that come about? I think COVID hit, you said you read a book uh, about Freya Hofmeister and she has paddled yeah. before. Yeah, so Freya Hofmeister was a German woman. She paddled around the entire coastline of Australia, so it's 16,000 kilometres uh, in 2009. So I read her book actually mid-COVID. It's called Fearless. It's by Joe, Joe Glickman. And I was so inspired. I, I happened to read Jess Fox's book. Uh, Jess Fox, sorry, uh, Jess Watson. I'd love to read if Jess Fox has a book coming out. It would be amazing. Um, Jess Watson's book about uh, a week later. So I was so inspired by these women and... I just started to think, could I do that on an ocean ski? So she was on a ski that's 100 kilo fully loaded with no support. 
So I don't think my husband would have let me go like that. Um, <laughs> so we started thinking what sort of support could, could come along and it's led to where it is now, which we have a marine biologist coming. Um, we have a crew of six. We have a videographer. Um, it's quite a big scale project. Um, the catamaran's 40 foot. So thankfully we can stay on the, the catamaran if required with COVID restrictions. So it's fortunate that we actually put together that big support team. Right. So, so basically, um, will you be coming into the land at all or how many kilometres will you be doing per day? Yeah, so it's looking um, like I'm going to have to plug through 80 to 100k a day to meet that target of around six months. So the current record is at uh, 10 months, 22 days. Um, I've just had the Guinness World Record approved recently, so to, to go for that. So we will be coming into land. We want to run some workshops and some dinners and things like that because I'm raising money for Gotcha for Life, which is um, a mental fitness charity in Sydney who are amazing. So I'd love to come in and promote them um, and raise awareness for what I'm doing there. So we've just got to see how it goes. Uh, James has told us we can get an exemption um, and stay out on the catamaran. But, you know, seasickness, that kind of thing, sea legs, I'll be, I'll be wanting to come to shore. So as soon as I can, I will be hitting the beach. So whereabouts are you going to start? Where's the journey, the starting point? Yeah, so on the Gold Coast. Um, so I'll be heading out from Karawa Surf Club on the 19th of December and heading south. Uh, we've chatted a lot about the direction and the timing and around that December uh, we've got to head south to miss the uh, wet season up the top. So higher chances of cyclones, um, more crocodiles around that time. Um, you know, heading south first allows us to miss the colder months down the bottom and miss the wet season up the top. So the current should be pretty favourable. Um, you know, James will be sort of drawing the rum lines and telling me where to go and looking ahead at the forecast. Um, but there's different challenges around different parts of the coastline. And, yeah, I'm fortunately I'm doing that civilised section first. It would be pretty hectic to start over in Western Australia or down the bottom. Um, so I'll be, I'd like to say working my way into it as a little bit as much as I can. Well, for the listeners overseas, you said it's 16,000 kilometres. I mean, as we know, it takes five hours to fly from pretty much Sydney across to Perth. It's a, it's a big island. Now, a lot of the listeners always contact me and they're petrified of sharks, they're petrified of crocodiles. Now, here you are on this little ski uh, out in the middle of the ocean and you're going to go around. And down around Bass Strait, South Australia, there's some treacherous water. So explain that, that to people that don't understand. I mean, Bass Strait can be some of the worst conditions we get in Australia. Yeah, definitely. And that's it. It's um, not even me really against like a record or time. It's, I don't want to say against the ocean, but it's about working with the ocean as best you can. So there's going to be weather days where I can't paddle simply because the headwinds are too strong or it's huge surf. And I mean, the ocean skis don't plow through waves in the same way surf life-saving skis do. They've, they have carbon fiber. They're very light. They fill up with water um, and then they empty through a drain. But 
basically James, the skipper, will be looking ahead and letting me know when I have those weather windows. So he will tell me when I've got to go and there will be days where I might have to do over 100K. He said down the bottom we'll have times where we might have three, four day of clear, three, four days of clear weather where I have to absolutely fang it and get some good Ks in. Then I might have to get on the boat, get to safety and restart in a couple of days' time. That's how crazy the weather can get. As you know, fog, mist, rain, like the visibility is a huge thing for safety, um, even though I'll be wearing high vis and we'll have two-way radios. So as best we can, we'll manage it. But there'll be times where the boat can't sit next to me. You know, it might be, he said, a K or two ahead because they're going to sail as much as possible. So I'm trying to visualize and kind of get in my mind that, you know, there's going to be some times where I'll be out in the middle of the ocean and just go through those processes, like whether it's thinking about your technique, um, I'll be playing some music, trying not to get overwhelmed by the situation. Now also, is there a plan up the top end, up around Northern Territory? Because there are a lot of uh, crocodiles around. Uh, what plans are in place to protect you in, in that environment? Yeah, so we'll be paddling a long way offshore up the top, way further out than I'd like to go. It might be <laughs> 10, 20 kilometres offshore. Um, you know, basically the crocodiles hang in close generally. So the riverbeds, estuaries, that's where they fish. Um, so I'll be carrying a shark shield with me unsure how it works on crocodiles so the best thing with the crocodiles is to stay out um and we won't really be coming to shore there at the top they start from around that um northern of western australia northern point of western australia and carry right over to a uh, really sort of past that Mackay region in in queensland so um yeah and it's it's a different water like some of that water it's brown it's kind of creepy it really has that bit of a feel to it so that when people ask what's the most challenging part, that to me is what springs to mind because I've had a lot of experience in the big surf and we can manage that to a certain point with the forecasts. Um, sharks, yes, absolutely. But, you know, that's kind of part and parcel of ocean paddling and we, we do see them out there. Um, but the crocodiles as a whole, well, that's just unprecedented. I mean, they're super smart. They, they stalk people. Um, you know, one of the guys who had done the paddle previously, done this paddle, he said one of them followed him for 100 kilometres. So that kind of thing's a bit creepy. So whether it's just calling it and one's following me and it's time to get on the boat, I, yeah. And there's two sort of approaches. There's not thinking about it too much and telling yourself it won't happen, but then there's also the second one I'm trying to go with and it's desensitising yourself to it and actually accepting that I will see things out there I don't want to see. They'll be there and just trying to manage as best as I can, whether that's, again, paddling further out or if it's time to get on the boat. With the um, winds up that way, I mean, I'm not sure on on how. It would be a lot of downwind at all or just the way the winds will blow, it it might not be the case? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm hoping to get some cranking downwind. It's apparently up the um, coast of Western Australia or heading up the top, you know, um, south to north. You get some really good winds there. The skipper said the hardest point will be um, around the Queensland up the top of north. So you get a lot of um, southerlies come through. So coming back almost in the home stretch, I'll be so close to home, but I'll get some ripping southerlies against me. So hopefully the time we're going, we're going to get most of the currents going with us, but there will absolutely be days of headwinds. And um, at the moment I've been paddling into a couple of headwinds and just trying to get used to that. I mean, 
there's going to be so many times the conditions aren't ideal. And as you know, you just have to get out and train in them and get, get used to it. So on the training, how do you train for something like this to paddle around Australia 16,000 kilometres? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, the answer is you basically can't train exactly for it. You can do your best to go in strong and fit and do that prehab to prevent injuries. So I've been in the gym. I'm trying to, um, yeah, strengthen the muscles that are going to be used the most so that I don't increase my risk of injury. Um, Obviously, shoulders are a big one, that overuse. I've been doing a lot of ocean swimming, running, gym, and, of course, the ski paddling as well. But you can't exactly get out there and do 100K paddles every day or you'll just go in with an injury itself. So um, a bit of a mix of everything. And just that preparation with nutrition and thinking about what we'll do with the recovery aspect as well. And when you're looking at taking off, was it December? 19th of December, I'll leave. So um, just at work today, my dietitian clinic, and I'll be finishing up here uh, the week before. So just planning all of that out. I've got a dietitian who's coming and take over for me. So pretty much going on a bit of a sabbatical, leaving my life and and heading on this this six-month journey. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just the right timing, I think, if not now, then probably never, um, you know, before I have a family, that kind of thing. So, yeah, no better time than to pick that paddle up and, and see how we go in December. And how's the mental preparation? Because obviously physically is one thing, but the men- it must be a massive mental challenge. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's huge, definitely. And I haven't really had the time to get excited too much because there's so much planning involved in logistically what it's going to look like. You know, we've got a land vehicle as well and where we're going to stop and the skipper's sort of plotting out all the routes there. So um, I think I'll be excited when we take off just to kind of leave it all behind. And we've got a videographer and my husband, Matt, who will be looking after, you know, whether it's um, uh, we're going to be doing the vlogs each day and keeping people up to date. I'll just have to paddle. So, I mean, this is probably the hardest part for me is trying to put the sponsorship together and and that funding that we need. Um, And then come December, it's happy days, hopefully. And who's come on board with the, you know, your sponsors and also can people, where do they go if they want to um, support you and, and, and jump on board with funding and also, you know, follow your journey? Yeah, so I was really lucky to have Shoreham Partners come on board um, and Earl Evans, who's a big um, supporter of surf life saving and ocean ski paddling. Um, so Shoreham Partners are my uh, major sponsor. They've been amazing. They've essentially allowed this journey to happen because it's a huge cost um, involved in the food and fuel and skipper and boat hire alone. And then I've had some amazing other sponsors come on board. Gardner Cars are doing our land vehicle. You know, I've got everything from vitamins covered with Vus to Sunnies with Oakleys to uh, Megaburn doing nutrition. Um, it, it's been amazing. So uh, a lot of support from the Gold Coast community in general and, and further abroad as well. Um, you know, Tank at Bennett Surf Life Savings giving me a bunch of paddles because I said, oh, just the one's fine. He's like, you will absolutely need at least six paddles, one per month. So, um, you know, Nordic do my skis. So it's it's a team effort and we basically looked at everything I would need and just who could help out with those different things. Right, that's great. Um, look, I, I wish you all the best and uh, I'll keep track and, and follow you uh, as you paddle around Australia and, yeah, when you complete it, we'll uh, we'll have to get you back into the beach shack and have a chat about it. For sure. And if any, if I'm coming through Sydney Way and every anyone wants to jump on, we're going to be doing live updates. So come along for a couple of k, anyone. And um, yeah, that company will be well and truly valued at that stage. That's for sure. 
I might even uh, come out myself and have a, have a paddle. I, uh, that'd be good motivation for me to get out and do something. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> now, at the end of the interviews, I always do five fun facts. So I'm going to throw five questions at you. You can answer them however you like and mm-hmm. uh, see where we go with it. So the first okay. question is, uh, what terrible movie do you love? <laughs> okay, so... Definitely Mean Girls springs to mind, which is hilarious. Um, if anyone's seen just all the one-liners, my sister and I, my sisters and I, I should say all of them, grew up watching that and quoting from the Rachel McAdams character. But another, mo- another movie, I guess more like a series just recently, is actually Squid Game, which it's pretty terrible because it's dubbed in English and it's Korean. But um, if you haven't watched that, watch it. There's lots of gore. So that one, not such a movie, but... Um, Super terrible and amazing. <laughs> Very good. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Yeah, so actually something yesterday that popped up um, on social media, which is where we get a lot of news, I guess, these days. Uh, I don't know if you've seen they're creating a, a shark-proof wetsuit. So um, they say it's like eight to, t- 8 to 15 times stronger than Kevlar, and they haven't released too much. And in the, I was just reading a little bit about it yesterday, so it's dropping soon, and they're saying it's a, a wetsuit for surfers. I don't know about swimmers, but I looked at my husband and thought, okay, this might be something we keep tabs on here, possibly to paddle around. So very interesting for me. <laughs> very interesting. Uh, Favourite takeaway food? Oh, Definitely, I'd say grilled, um, really good, or Thai. So either of those things, bit of a Friday night, yeah, treat there after work, yeah. Uh, Favourite childhood memory? Um, Gosh, so many of them. I think perhaps coming up to the Gold Coast when we were young and going nuts at Wet and Wild and we would go to Pacific Fair and, I mean, in Sawtell, we, we don't even have – they have a Kmart now, I must say, but back then, no. So all of that was a huge novelty for us. So just spending time with my family and, and coming up, yeah, to the Goldie. So no surprise I moved up here. Uh, last time you laughed so much you cried. Oh, I think it was recently watching a Kevin Hart um, stand-up probably he's absolutely hilarious and the other one is um pete davidson so those two if i've had a bit of a crappy day put them on and just yeah he's just absolutely crazy so yeah he never fails to make me laugh great answers and bonnie it's been a pleasure having you in the beach shack and having a chat and talking about your adventure paddling around australia and uh i can't wait to see you do it Thank you so much. And, yeah, if anyone wants to follow along um, on just on my Instagram, at Bonnie Hancock, uh, we'll be posting everything there so people can come along for the journey. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a warm welcome to one of my mates and former lifeguards, Peter Cahoon. How are you, mate? Hello, Hop. Very well, Hoppo. Very well. We're here to unlock some old memories as well again, the old days of, <laughs> of, 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 of Tamarama, which uh, I spent a few years down there, the, gra- the great beach that's sandwiched by Bronte on the south and, 
and Bondi to the north. But um, you you would have worked at Tama. I mean, you're known as the Bondi lifeguard, but you yeah. started at, at Bronte, didn't you? Yeah, I did a bit at Bronte, and then uh, I did a year at, at Tamarama, locked in there to the rock. And uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to work out what I did wrong to end up at the rock. But, yeah, I did at a year rock- at Tama. And, and, and that, that was well, with you and Billy Moore and uh, Ponch. Yep. Well, you remember those days? Ponch, God, you've got some characters there. But you may remember, and Tamarama during the 80s and 90s was known as, well, it was the gay beach. It was. It was yeah. the gay beach, which which was fine. And and, and, yeah. and Sydney being, uh, you know, one of the gay capitals of the world, of course, around Mardi Gras time, people from all over the world, guys, mainly guys from all over the world, <laughs> would descend on Tamarama Beach, which which is kind of sort of ironic because Tamarama is the most dangerous beach in the Waverley District. And they'd come down there, a lot of, lot of international tourists here for the Mardi Gras, uh, from San Francisco, obviously, and all those other gay capitals, and they'd find themselves very easily in trouble. And it'd be up to the local lifeguards, including myself, to go out and pick up all these gay guys. <laughs> right. Fine, it's part of the job, Oppo. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, right? That's right. We, we don't discriminate against anybody. Not, we pick up, we go and rescue anybody. <laughs> no, no. But what I found after about the second or third year, you'd have these gay guys throwing themselves in the rip. Right. To be rescued by a bloody lifeguard. Oh, right, and in the end, I'm, I got you know, yeah, so I got a bit, bit, bit. Jack, is that the right word? Of it? Yeah, anyway, yeah, a bit yeah, Jack. Yes, I'd say to you know my, my fellow comrades might be Ponch or Billy Moore or even Brendan Reed. God bless them. I said, listen, I'm not wearing my uniform anymore. I'm not wearing it because <laughs> because all of a sudden, because you you know you put these patients on the front of a rescue board, your face is sort of not in a very comfortable position between their legs, and you and you and you're ferrying them back to the beach. Then all of a sudden, you've got a thousand cameras in your face and they're laughing and high-fiving themselves because they've been rescued by by a lifeguard. Now that's that's fine. That, that, that's fine and, 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 and it was fun. It was was fun days but there was a time when my local lifeguard friends took a little bit advantage of me. They, they took a photo of me of me standing there in my lifeguard uniform because I know how sort of uncomfortable I was about the whole situation. They blew it up into a poster around Mardi Gras time, the gay Mardi Gras, and made a poster of myself somehow advertising the lifeguard float, which which was always sort of front and centre in the gay Mardi Gras. I thought, how on earth has someone got a photo of me, made a poster out of it, and now I'm the, <laughs> the pin-up of <laughs> the gay Mardi Gras float. How did this happen? I was secretly cr- quite proud of myself, Oppo. quite proud. <laughs> <laughs> you've kept this story for so many years. You've just been dying to get it out, haven't you? <laughs> oh, you've out, you've outed me. I'm coming out. I'm coming out. <laughs> no, look, back in the eighties and not of course, of the 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 gays of the gay fraternity of Sydney is, um, you know, very much part of the fabric. Really, yeah. much so in the eastern suburbs, and and a lot of them now sort of have in the few last few years migrated to, to North Bondi. Which is a lot, a lot safer. <laughs> let's face it, and less rescues. The yeah, boys can't right. throw themselves in the rip. Is obvious. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, the only problem now with North Bob dies, we've got the tower down there, the portable tower. And uh, that, that week that uh, the game Mardi Gras is on, it's, uh, everyone's looking at their roster about two <laughs> months, three months prior to see who lands on that week that are rostered down the north end of Bondi. <laughs> oh, mate, because the long lenses, the long lenses, dare I say, Hoppo, they come out. <laughs> oh, Pete, mate, that's, a, that's an absolute classic story and uh, it's been a pleasure, mate, having you back in the beach shack. Oh, we're a bit naughty, but who cares? <laughs> Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's mailbag is from Mark, and he's uh, from Melbourne. Why did you call your chocolate lab Cuba? Well, Mark, uh, we went to Cuba, Karen and I, and that's where I proposed to Karen. So back in uh, a few years ago now, and uh, that was how when we came back and and we got Cuba, we decided to, uh, that was such a great memory that we would call um, our next chocolate lab Cuba. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.